0: Chapter 1 of the Yoga Sutras, <clears throat> there's a description of Om, and by chanting, contemplating, meditating on Om, it's said that uh, that removes all obstacles to one's practice, all obstacles to one's realization. Um, from an astrological perspective, Om <clears throat> is said to be uh, a manifestation of Ganesh, and we know that Ganesh is the Lord and the remover of obstacles. And so, by chanting Om, meditating on Om, learning to listen to practice the Om technique, uh, what you'll find is um, many of your inner distractions will fall away. And when I first started uh, chanting Om and learning to hear Om, what I always found was if I was in um, not the best mood, or not very clear, uh, or needed a little bit more motivation, if I could. If I could get myself to do it, because you know sometimes when you're not in the best mood, you don't quite want to do the things that are good for you. But if I could get myself to do it, I would always find that um, I would just feel a little perkier and uh, more able to do what I needed to do. So we never want to forget about these very simple processes like chanting and contemplating Um This morning we're going to be talking about uh, the origins of this Kriya Yoga tradition. And by this Kriya Yoga tradition, uh, I mean through the lineage of Babaji, Lahiri Mahasaya, Swami Sri Yukteswar, um, Paramahansa Yogananda, Roy Jean Davis, and their students, um, Isha Das, Ellen Grace O'Brien, myself and others who've been ordained and authorized to teach um, because there are other lineages uh, of Kriya Yoga, there are other branches of Kriya Yoga. You want to be aware that even in those different lineages, there might be different emphasis on techniques. Uh, Mr. Davis would always talk about people coming to learn from him, and maybe they had learned from another Kriya Yoga teacher. And there was a little, more, um, a little more involved in the Kriya Pranayama, maybe some chanting or some visualizations, And he would always say, you know, all you have to do is get your awareness in the spine and pull the current up and let it flow back down. That's one way you can do it. But if you've learned it from others where you've got mantras that you chant, that's also perfectly fine. Um, But our lineage began, well, back in 1861 when Lahiri Mahasaya uh, was first introduced to Babaji in this lifetime. Um, Babaji explained to Lahiri Mahasaya that they had been together before in previous lifetimes, and that uh, Lahiri Mahasaya used to be part of Babaji's um, wandering band of reclusive yogis. And when Lahiri Mahasaya met Babaji, Lahiri Mahasaya was already engaged in the world. He was already an accountant, I think, for the military. I don't know if he had children yet, but he was already married, and he was al- he already had a- responsibilities within the world. If I recall, I think he had ch- children after he was initiated, and then he ended up having five children. And um, it seems like a lot of kids, <laughs> uh, especially if you're going to be a-, a-, a yogi. But <clears throat> anyway, the reason that uh, Babaji explained that uh, Lahiri Mahasaya didn't meet Babaji earlier in this lifetime. And the reason he wasn't part of his wandering band of reclusive uh, yogis was because Lahiri Mahasaya's message or mission was to share these practices with uh, everyday people, householders, people who had families, people who had to work. And even though Lahiri Mahasaya wanted to stay with Babaji, Babaji said, no, you have to play this role in this lifetime. And During um, Lahiriya Mahasaya's life, I believe it was said that he had initiated over 5,000 people. Um, People would come to his home and he would meet with them personally, uh, teach them Kriya Yoga. And he would always say to them, um, Don't tell anyone I'm your guru. Don't tell anyone you do this work. Just do it. Get the experience of it. And maybe people will notice that you've changed. Maybe people will notice that you're different. And if they want to learn what you're up to, well, then refer them to me, and I will will teach them. And I find this to be very important. Number one, at the time that we're living, I feel that this information needs to be accessible to everyone who's interested in it. Um, That's why I've done a lot of work on YouTube, um, tried to make these things more accessible. But number two, those of you who are in the Kriya Yoga Apprenticeship Program that I do that's the two-year program or know about it, um, it's mostly online and we do get together through webinars and so on, but I like to encourage people not to get in groups. Don't tell you should I said this, <laughs> Since, obviously as a group of people, I tell people not to do that because I want them to, um, have their own, um, have their own experience. I think groups can be wonderful support. Uh, as long as everyone's respectful of each other's privacy and so on. But ultimately, I think about Lahiri Mahasaya and how he said, you know, don't tell anyone I'm your guru and don't tell anyone you do this. And the emphasis was on doing it, getting the experience of it. Um, And so we have to ride that line between making it available to as many people as we can versus being very clear about the work has to be done on your own uh, and being very clear that... Um, organizations and churches and groups are extremely helpful because they help to um, sustain, sustain the visibility of um, what we're doing here with uh, Kriya Yoga. That was uh, Mahavatar Babaji and Lihiri Mahasaya's um, interaction. Lihiri Mahasaya had several students, one of them being Yogananda's parents, or Yogananda's uh, mother and father. Uh, Also, uh, Swami Sri Yukteswar was a student of Lahiri Mahasaya. And what I enjoy about um, the different teachers uh, and and how they they presented was they were all uh, different. They all had their own way. And if you ever get a chance to read some of the commentary, say, of uh, Lahiri Mahasaya and compare it to um, Sri Yukteswar, the very Messiah sounds like he's drunk half the time when you, when you read his commentaries. But he, he, he talks about that, him being drunk on spirit, being drunk on, on, on God. And then you get to Sri Yukteswar's commentaries, and it says, you know, you must be scientific and discerning and get rid of sentimentality. You know, it's, it's, it's very different. Then you get to Yogananda, who is quite devotional. Um, but Sri Yukteswar, as we know, um, was very intelligent, and he was very discerning. And Yogananda referred to him as a Gyan avatar, or an avatar of, um, of wisdom, of knowledge. And many people don't think of individuals who are uh, jnanis, or, or more knowledge-based, I guess you could say, as being devotional. But Sri Yukteswar was quite devotional. And the way he was devotional was through his commitment to understanding what was true. If you love someone, or if you love something, what do you do? You try to learn all you can about it, right? I mean, if you're in a relationship, it makes sense to figure out what your partner enjoys and doesn't enjoy, and what remarks you should and shouldn't make. It, it makes it makes a difference in a relationship. Sri Yukteswar was profoundly devotional in that he sought to understand... Well, Ishvara, which is the Lord of the universe, right? That's why they call him Swami Shriptishwar, a Unity with Ishvara, and when you are able to turn your attention to discovering what is true, uh, love comes from that, and you're naturally pulled more inward towards it. And your own meditation path, your own spiritual path, the more you commit to trying to figure out, for example, what the Yoga Sutras are trying to share with you, or what your spiritual teacher is sharing with you, or what what you believe God or the Divine to be. The more you try to figure it out, the more you fall in love with it, and the more you want to explore it, the more you want to spend time with it. When I think of Sri Yukteswar, to me, I never think of him as... Uh, a cold, dry uh, disciplinarian. I think of him as someone who was just so enthralled with uh, the practice of spirituality and yoga and understanding what's going on that it's just what he was. It's what it's what he became, and that's what I like to encourage all of you to do as well. So, learn from Sri Yukteswar that the path, the clearer you get. On what you want to know, on who you think you are, and what you really are inside—that's um, not counter to devotion. That's not counter to bhakti. In fact, it will actually encourage it. Sri Yukteswar also got married and had a daughter. And after his wife passed, that's when he joined the Swami order. And he never wanted to be a slave to—he um, never wanted to be a slave to anyone. And uh, in, the, in the Autobiography of a Yogi, um, he talks about a message that his mom gave him very on, or his mother gave him very on. She would say, uh, anyone who works for someone else is a slave. <laughs> and she said that, that that sat with him, so he never wanted to do that. So what he ended up doing was uh, taking the money from, I, I suppose, his father, his, his, his ancestors, and he began investing it in um, properties. So he was able to support his ashram, his work, um, because he uh, had properties that he he invested. So he wasn't just a Swami. He wasn't just a yogi wandering around. He had a mind for business. He had a mind for being responsible. He had a mind for taking care of what needed to be taken care of so that he could do the work freely for those who needed it. Um, that's one thing I, I always appreciated about uh, Center for Spiritual Awareness and Mr. Davis. When I first started going there... I was, not, I was just almost out of college and I didn't have any money. And uh, uh, I would go there and I would spend a week and I would spend time with Mr. Davis and I would eat all their food and I would uh, you know, uh, stay in the, the, the guest houses. And at the end of the week, I had $20 left. Sometimes not even that. And Mr. Davis never made, he never brought it up. He never made an issue of it. I just donated what I could. And um, I would try to volunteer and help out around the grounds at times, too. Um, and I, I liked that because there was no there was no expectation there. There was just a sense of, of giving freely of what was available. And he had quite a lot of good fortune, like Isha Das and Ellen Grace O'Brien, in regards to setting up that center. He would always say it was as if... Um, It was as if things just showed up exactly when they needed to be, like he would say he was living in grace. I think when you can start to adopt an idea of of living in grace and finding ways to attend to your spirituality and be responsible for your resources, um, things tend to work out for you to support your spiritual practice. Or if you're inspired to share the work or help others, Uh, In this way, you find a way to do it. There's a a practice in in the Yoga Sutras, and it's just constant in all yoga practice, called Brahmacharya. Uh, Brahmacharya is described as going like God, or Mr. Davis would describe it as um, managing your resources well, managing your energy well, managing your time well. And when I reflect upon Brahmacharya and uh, sort of the... The support that Mr. Davis had with um, teaching Kriya Yoga. When you read the Yoga Sutras, there's this idea that if you practice Brahmacharya, if you are able to direct your attention to what is important, then you will have all the resources that you need for that. Now, it doesn't necessarily always mean you're going to have a super abundance or that everything's going to work out perfectly, but it does say that if you are able to get very clear on what you are directing your energy towards, that the support will be there and specifically in the spiritual practice if you're able to direct your time and your attention intelligently um, and not waste your life you will find that everything you need in this life will be provided for you for your own awakening now of course you might have to learn some lessons That you don't think you should have to learn but what you'll find is the more you get involved in this practice of brahmacharya it's as if everything you experience is conspiring to wake you up Uh, I was having a discussion with uh, one of the participants here and uh, many of you know that uh, my wife passed about three years ago three and a half years ago and uh, she asked how I was doing with that and and if I got any messages about that. And some of you have heard this story before. Um, When she was on her way out, I was meditating by her. Uh, She was in bed, and I was meditating by her. And everything for her treatment went really, really well for the first year, so much so that we thought she was going to survive. But then the second year, it all just went, nothing worked. It just went downhill, no good whatsoever. And I remember that first year thinking, wow, prayer really works. You know, this, this faith and this positive thinking, it's just making everything wonderful. But then year two comes along. And now, doesn't work at all. Nothing responds to it. It's, what's that all about? So I meditated, and I was meditating, and I was asking, um, why did everything go so well only to just completely bottom out and not work at all the, the, now? And I sat there quietly, and I was listening And in my mind, boom, this voice that said, so you'll learn this isn't real. (laughs) So you'll learn this isn't real. So what would your response be if that happened to you? (laughs) I think we could have done this a different way, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, of course, at the time, you know, caught up in the grief and and, and the, the, the trauma of it all. It took a while to kind of get a hold of that. But, you know, as the years have gone by, I've realized that that experience, that's what it was for. And uh, things like that happen in our life. And uh, the, while we don't necessarily want to imagine that's the case, because everything should be good all the time, that was good. Uh, Ishidas, uh, well, I've talked with him before, and he would call that dark grace. So it's still grace, but he calls it dark grace, because it's grace that gets you and shakes you so that you have to look at what is real. So anyway, even when you're practicing brahmacharya and and you are committed and you're, you're, you're doing your best to live the life that supports your spiritual practice, don't ever believe that nothing bad's ever going to happen again. But you can believe that when something that you perceive as being bad happens, if you're paying attention, more than likely, there will be some type of realization in it for you. I always like to make that point, because while I love Autobiography of a Yogi and Yogananda, uh, sometimes uh, all the fantastic, everything works out perfectly, um, that hasn't quite been my experience or everyone else's that I've, I've talked to, so I try to bring that up. Anyway, back to Sri Yukteswar. <clears throat> So uh, Sri Yukteswar trained Yogananda, and Yogananda, uh, as you know, was... Um, very devotional, very emotional, and sometimes very immature. And he met this teacher, Sri Yukteswar, that was the complete opposite of what he was. But Yogananda later went on to admit that that's exactly what he needed, because he needed that balance so that he was able to do his mission, which was to go to the West— to start this organization, Self-Realization Fellowship, to create this this movement that has impacted the world. I mean, I think Autobiography of a Yogi is, what, like the third or second best-selling book ever now? So many people know about this. But he would not have been able to accomplish that if he had not subjected himself to uh, the training of Sri Yukteswar. And um, it always makes me laugh when I read Autobiography of a Yogi and they have their first meeting. Yogananda has been looking for his guru to show him God and divine consciousness. And he's going all over the place. And he's already learned Kriya Yoga from his father and from his Sanskrit tutor. And then one day he's outside and he just happens to see this figure. And he tries to turn around and go the other direction, but it's like his feet are lead and he can't move. But every time he turns towards Sri Yukteswar, he can walk, he can, he can go in that direction. And he finally goes up to him. Oh, Guru Deva! Sri Dashwara says, "My son, I've been waiting for you forever. You know, for lifetimes, or that that kind of idea." And Sri pledges his unconditional love to Yogananda, <laughs> and he says, "I pledge this unconditional love to you. Um, you know, essentially, will you do the same for me, and will you will you listen to me?" Yogananda, of course, says, "Yes, I've been I've been waiting for this my whole life." And then Sri says, "What well, will you do?" what I ask. It's, yes. I want you to go back home and go to college. Which was the very thing that, Shri, uh, that Yogananda didn't want to do. And it gets tense and cold. <laughs> and Yogananda doesn't want to do that. So he tells Sri Yukteswar, no, I'm not doing that. And then it changes and, and Sri Yukteswar says, well, you will do it. And uh, next time I see you, um, there better be a, a change in your tone. <laughs> and they finally come back together again they work it out but I just I I always think it's funny you know I love you I've been waiting for you Will you do what I say Mm, no (laughs) but but I found that to be I found that to be the case too that what 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 the teacher does for you is rounds you out Um, how many of you are familiar with Roy Eugene Davis Are, are all of you familiar with him okay well this is Roy um, you know, Roy was born, born in 1931. He um, he was raised on a farm. Um, he was always very clean cut and um, well groomed. And uh, Yogananda wanted his uh, his monks and his teachers to be that way because he thought it would help them reach more people. You know, and um, when I met Mr. Davis, you know, here I come along. I think when I met him, I actually had just shaved my head. And my hair had grown out, so it was just sticking out like I couldn't actually put it down. Um, I was wearing, you know, all the the Rudraksha beads. And and when you get Rudraksha beads, they tell you to, like, oil them to keep them fresh. And I would get the sandalwood. And I would always over-oil them, so I always had these, like, oil stains, like, all over my shirt. And so I I, I still like jewelry and gemstones and things, but I was, like, covered in in gemstones. And um, and I meet him and... (laughs) and he was very polite and um you know i went to the retreat and i sat in the middle row and it was dark and i remember seeing him walk up to the the altar and he he lit the the candle and lit the incense and waved it in front of the the pictures of the gurus and and i was overwhelmed with emotion when that happened i don't know why because while i had read autobiography of a yogi and um i had been practicing meditation consistently before meeting him. I didn't have the. I was raised in West Virginia, and I was raised Catholic. And while I read autobiography of a yogi, I didn't have the. I got to find a guru feeling. Like I, I just wasn't. I wasn't in that culture. I didn't wasn't aware that that was really a thing. I thought that was just something that you know they did in India. So I was not thinking, oh, I've got to go find you know my one and only guru what i was thinking was i want to learn Kriya yoga because it seems to do what i want to, what what i want to learn what i want to experience having been interested in psychology and philosophy and religion but so here i am in the in the back and he walks up and uh, i can barely see him but i just start crying i'm just ball and trying to keep it together because i'm around all these people i've never met before and it finally calmed down and um he goes through the the mantra om namah Shivaya like we did this morning and i I get it all together um and uh the meditation quits and so i go up and i introduce myself and i I put out my hand and because i figure that's what he wants not a big hug and um I say, I'm, I'm Ryan, and he knew me through through email, and I put out my hand to shake it, and he just gave me a hug and kind of squished me in, and he, he's much taller than me, so it was always awkward, you know, just kind of... <laughs> 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 but but he did it anyway, and uh, and then he said, Well, I, I, I'm glad you're here. And then he walked away, and that was my, my first meeting. But after that, there was just an, a knowing that this is the person that I'm going to learn from. And as the years went by, he consistently recommended that I uh, dress a little bit differently and groom myself a little bit differently. And I listened for about 10 years. <laughs> so so I, I did a good job for about 10 years, but then I, couldn't, I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't, couldn't handle the haircuts and everything. His approach was very different, but only outwardly for me. Because like I said last night at the, the Thursday um, Kriya Yoga session, I always understood what he said even though I was just kind of getting new into the new age stuff, um, when I heard him talk, when I heard his directness, and when I heard the the no BS approach and how he just got right to the matter, that made perfect sense to me. So I always felt more connected to the Kriya Yoga tradition through him and through Sri Sri Yukteswar rather than say Yogananda. Um, I have a wonderful respect for Yogananda, and every time I I read uh, Autobiography of a Yogi, even, even amidst the, the fantastic stories, what I love about it is underneath all of those stories is a wonderful moral or lesson or yogic teaching. Um, and so I really appreciate how Yogananda was able to kind of bridge that gap to share yoga in a way that appealed to people. But also, if you really dig underneath the surface, it, it is just full of yogic lessons. Sometimes when I read Autobiography of Yogi, it's like, uh, I, I feel it's like too sweet cake for me these days. Like, you know, when you're, when you're eating a, a dessert, and you think, this is really good, but it's just a little too sweet. So for your own, the reason I'm bringing all this up, for your own uh, path, it's okay if you don't <clears throat> resonate with or feel a, a profound connection to every one of the gurus in the tradition. And that changes over time. For example, when I first started practicing, I didn't really have much of a sense of um, resonance, I suppose, with Lahiri Mahasaya. I don't know why. Maybe it's just because there wasn't a lot written about him, or I didn't, didn't have access to a lot of his books. But as time went on, um, I became more and more devotional towards Lahiri Mahasaya. Uh, moved a little bit away from Sri So depending on your own development and where you are in the process, you might find that different teachers resonate with you at different times. But that's why we have all of we have all of these different teachers. Because they can speak to you in a way that maybe another teacher couldn't. Yogananda went through the train with Sri and Sri Yukteswar trained him to come to the West to teach Kriya Yoga. And Sri from what I remember Roy saying, when Sri Yukteswar went to the boat to see Yogananda off, um, he told Yogananda specifically, teach Kriya Yoga from the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Teach Kriya Yoga from the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Um, and in some of Sri Yukteswar's commentaries that we have access to, there's a lot of discussion about uh, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Um, and this is Very important because in the second chapter of the Yoga Sutras, um, that chapter is entitled Kriya Yoga. So the Yoga Sutras is a Kriya Yoga text, meaning really anyone who teaches yoga from the Yoga Sutras is essentially teaching Kriya Yoga. And this is very important because while we have this specific lineage, we have to remember that the system of yoga that we are learning is not necessarily particular to the teachers as as we know them. Those teachers taught taught it, but throughout the world, when people are are teaching uh, from the Yoga Sutras, the techniques in the Yoga Sutras, that is Kriya Yoga. For example, the the meditation we did this morning um, where we were chanting through the chakras, now this is often taught as a preliminary technique meaning something you do before you actually learn the Kriya Yoga Pranayama. But that technique in and of itself is a profoundly powerful Kriya, if it's done with that intention. The reason it's not necessarily taught as, um, uh, it's not emphasized so much is because it takes a level of subtlety and it takes a level of uh, awareness to really get into that process because when most people start going into their body and into the chakra system what typically happens is they fall asleep because they've not yet learned how to remain alert and awake while accessing these deeper states of consciousness some of you who studied yoga a little bit more uh, in depth might be aware of um, the idea of bringing awareness to the three states of consciousness of waking Dreaming and deep sleep, and of course the fourth stage which goes beyond that, but when you begin to go into the deeper levels of um, meditation You begin to become aware of That inner world of dreams which some can say is the astral world now again What happens when most people start to dream? They, they lose their capacity to hold their awareness there, and they nod off, and they, they go off into dreamland. But as a yogi, you can train yourself to remain as aware in dreams and in that kind of state as hopefully you are right now paying attention. Beyond that, once you get a hang of that, um, you can become aware of deep sleep, meaning your body can be asleep you can be snoring. You don't have any idea what's going on around you. Well, you might, but you don't have to. And But you can still be as aware, that point of awareness that is listening now, that is paying attention, that can exist and be present even while the body sleeps. And hopefully you do it while you're sitting up. That way you're, you're, you're in a meditative posture. Um, but that's teaching you to go through these deeper levels of awareness. And that practice that we did of chanting through the chakras has the capacity to do that when when you begin to explore the elemental aspects of it, meaning we talked about this morning, like the earth element, the uh, water element, the fire element, uh, air and ether. In the Yoga Sutras, uh, in the chapter on uh, soul powers and cities, there is a, a specific phrase that says by essentially contemplating the elements learning what their purpose is you you are able to go beyond them and you're able to access again these these deeper stages of awareness but the yoga sutras are not necessarily so straightforward because people get caught up in that and they just see you will gain mastery of the elements as though that's a a superpower for you but that's not what its purpose is its purpose is is to reveal to you that those elements of the physical body, that everything you experience, these different levels of awareness and these different levels of, of, of elemental experience, are there for the seer, the witness. So that which is, um, that which is beyond the mind, beyond the body, that which is eternal, which is always there. So, for example, you're listening now, right? You're pa- hopefully you're paying attention. You all like you're paying attention, so I'm going to believe that you are. You're all paying attention, okay? Well, what within you is paying attention like what is what what is what is able to see and experience what's going on all right what is that? It's not your body okay because last night you were dreaming well hopefully maybe you were dreaming and when you were dreaming were you aware of your body? no, but you were aware right that point which was aware of the dream, that's the exact same thing that is aware of what's going on right now. Think back when you were a kid. Think about a good childhood memory. Pick a good childhood memory. Put yourself back in that place. When you remember that, does does that witness which, which saw that, which experiences it, does it really feel any different than the the thing that's experiencing now you understand what i'm saying like when you think about being a kid and you have that point of awareness like is that awareness which was aware of playing with cars which could see the cars or which was playing with dolls or or fishing or, or out in the woods um that that awareness which which was able to perceive that is that really any different than what is here right now perceiving this might have to contemplate that a little bit, but the idea is that that awareness which which has witnessed everything, everything that you 've gone through good, bad, meditation um, everything that is that is the we could say the soul or the spirit or or the witness, and by doing these practices we're learning to become aware of that witness beyond the body and the mind. Um, Mr. Davis would always say that and many others would say this as well, Ramana Maharshi and uh, Yogananda and others, that the biggest obstacle to uh, our realization is the belief that we are a body and a mind, that we are a small sense of self. And so when we go through these deeper practices, what it's teaching us, when we are aware right now, and then we become aware during dreams, and then we become aware during deep sleep, Well, we start to put together. The more that happens, it doesn't happen immediately, but every time you do that, it becomes clearer and clearer and clearer that that awareness, which is aware now, which was aware in dreams, which was aware in deep sleep, is the exact same thing. And the more that that happens, it's as if you're becoming clearer on what is is true of you. And so then when when something new comes into your life, it doesn't bother you so much anymore because you know you're the awareness. You know that what's coming into your life is going to come and it's going to go and you're going to remain as the awareness. You know that you're going to be in the hospital for two days and it's not going to be fun. You're that awareness. In a few days, you're not going to be there anymore. You're that awareness. Next week, you're going on a camping trip. You're that awareness. Then you're coming to a meditation retreat. You're the awareness. You're meditating. You're aware of meditating. You're the awareness. Then you're having conversations with people and you start recognizing, wow, my body is talking. My mind is thinking, but I'm still that awareness which was there during meditation. And every time that happens, it's like it gets clearer and clearer that you are the thread that goes through the beads of a necklace rather than being the beads of the necklace. And it's that subtle process that these deeper techniques reveal to you if you can stay awake and alert enough to see it. But it takes time. And it's not... For some people, maybe it happens in a flash. Ramana Maharshi was one of them. But... If you're not Ramana Maharshi, uh, that is why you have yoga practice. And Ramana Maharshi would say this. If you can't just simply sit down and practice vichara or self-inquiry, we'll then do japa, will then do pranayama. These are aids to give you that breakthrough experience. And in time, as the years go by, this information becomes clearer, you become more settled in the self, and the stuff that you read in the Yoga Sutras, the stuff that Roy said, the stuff that Yogananda said, Sri Yukteswar um, Lahiri Mahasaya's supposed drunken ramblings—they all—they all make sense, and then you start to recognize what you are. Um, so, this is this is really what the path is about, and this is hopefully what the teachers share with you. Yogananda, he came to the United States, and he came to the United States in the 19—I think it was 1920s—and he came during a time when the Ku Klux Klan was like at its highest peak ever, um, uh, in regards to membership. And he comes uh, in his orange robes with chants, talking about strange things. How did he handle that? Well, the beautiful thing about that was his teacher, Sri Yukteswar, had a profound interest in Christianity in the Bible and um, Christian mysticism, much like uh, Ishidas Das does. And so through that example, um, Yogananda was able to come to the United States and speak to people at a level that was accessible to them. You know, that's why he used, instead of the Kutashta Chaitanya, he used Christ consciousness. Because those things are the same thing, right? You know, in India, they, 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 they talk about this, this state of consciousness. That's why Yogananda would call the gurus like Christ-like people, because Christ, the idea of Christ, isn't necessarily a person. The idea of Christ is a state of consciousness that, that is, is, is within all of us and accessible to all of us. And so when you practice Kriya Yoga and you become a teacher or a master, well, then you are aware of what the Christ consciousness is. But anyway, so he came to the United States, and he was able to uh, couch Kriya Yoga practice in uh, somewhat Christian terms, but that was okay. Because it allowed the seeds to be planted. Uh, It allowed the work, uh, the Kriya Yoga uh, understanding to grow until we became clear enough that many of us uh, didn't necessarily need that anymore. We could go a little more straight to the the, the source of, of yoga as yoga. Now that's not to be of any kind of criticism towards Christian mysticism because I think that's a wonderful, beautiful path. I remember Mr. Davis, when I first started going to CSA, um, he had the, the gurus much like exactly like this here, and Jesus was in the middle. And uh, later on, he took it down. Um, but I remember probably about my third or fourth year, I was there sitting in the audience. And I don't know how he knew this, because I never remember telling him about my background um, in regards to religion. Um, but people were asking questions, and there were some very, very new people there. And they were asking, well, who are the people on the altar? And I was thinking, me being an arrogant little 22-year-old who you know, thinks I know everything, um, I'm thinking, why would they even come here if they don't know who the gurus are? And uh, so they asked that question. And then me being a, a smartass, I decided to, I raised my hand, and he pointed at me. And I said, well, well, who's the guy in the middle? Yeah, Jesus. <laughs> and he looks at me, and he says, well, a good Catholic boy like you should know who your hero is, <clears throat> and, then, <laughs> and then, he dropped it. <laughs> but um, as time went on, um, as time went on, uh, Mister Davis changed a, a, a little bit, and he became less. Um, he, he dropped some of more of the Christian uh, undertones of things. When Mister Davis met Yogananda, Mister um, Davis was eighteen years old. He was just off the farm. Um, he had always had an interest in spirituality, and he remembers in Warren, Ohio, which is not very far from, from uh, where I live up in West Virginia now, um, he remembers going to the library, and this is just a rural farm community, somehow finding books on yoga postures. And he would he would try to put himself in these positions, um, and he was into bodybuilding, which uh, him and Isha Das uh, re- you know, uh, they got into discussions on that together, because Ishitas was as well. Um, But he was in the bodybuilding, and in one of the magazines he got, there was an advertisement for Autobiography of a Yogi. And he said he knew instantly he needed to get that book. So he he sent away for it, and that's when you had to actually mail things and wait weeks for it to come, and he finally got it. And he knew that that was his connection, that he knew that that was what he needed. He knew he needed to make that connection with uh, Yogananda. So Mr. Davis, being 18 years old, I think his mother had just passed away. Um, he told his dad that he was going to California to study with uh, an Indian swami. And again, this is in rural uh, rural Ohio. Let's see if he was born 1931, so this had to be um, somewhere around 40, around 1950, I suppose. Um, and his dad didn't quite want him to go. Um, but he decided that, you know, Roy needed to do what he needed to do. So he had his blessing. And Roy, for some reason, uh, thought he needed to go to Florida first. Now, when I think about it, like, well, California is not even in that direction. But he decided he needed to go to Florida first because he didn't want to spend another winter in Ohio. And that was back when Ohio had winters. Um, and so he went to Florida and he got a job um, going door-to-door sell- selling magazines. And he said he was terrible at it. Um, but the, the person who was in charge would take the boys to different neighborhoods, and they would take their magazines and try to sell them. And he couldn't sell anything. And finally, um, he decided he needed to move on, and he went and he talked to the... Uh, the the manager of this business. He said, you know, I I think it's time for me to move on. The manager said, yeah, I think so. (laughs) He says, you haven't sold anything. Um, But as far as I remember, the story goes, um, the manager lent him like $5, and then Roy hitchhiked from Florida to California, arriving in California uh, just before the Christmas service at Self-Realization Fellowship. And so here comes 18-year-old Roy, hitchhiking across the country, sleeping in, he he described it as like sleeping in like uh, orchards and so on, building a fire at night. And he made it, and he met Yogananda, and he said, the first thing Yogananda said to him was, uh, do your parents know you're here? (laughs) And he assured Yogananda that, that it was okay. And Yogananda told him he could stay, and he could stay for the, the meditation. And so his first experience at, at Self-Realization Fellowship and meditation was a six-hour Christmas season meditation. <laughs> but he was accepted, and um, he became a, a, a monk um, of Self-Realization Fellowship. And not very long after that, Yogananda sent Mr. Davis away to the Phoenix Center in um, well, in Phoenix, and some of the students said you know should we really be sending roy away so early he hasn't had much time here with you and um yogananda would say i know what i'm doing you know you leave roy alone uh yogananda eventually ordained mr davis and he ordained mr davis before uh, roy was really old enough to be ordained i think you had to be 21 years of age in california before you could be uh, actually uh, a minister but um Roy was visiting with Yogananda and one other uh, minister, and Roy said it was almost as if an afterthought for Yogananda. They were getting ready to be finished talking, and Yogananda said, Roy, you know, come over here, kneel down. <laughs> and they hadn't talked about this at all, and uh, Yogananda put his hand on his head and said, You know, uh, I-, I ordain you as-, as a Kriya Yoga teacher teach as I have taught, heal as I have healed, and initiate devotees of, of God into Kriya Yoga. <laughs> And uh, the other minister who was there immediately was like, so is Roy to initiate others? And Yogananda said, um, the same God that is in me is in you, and you too should do this. And Roy knew he wasn't meant to go out and start initiating people and, and teaching. He knew this was longer term. And, and Yogananda passed before uh, Mr. Davis turned 21. And so um, the head of the board at the time Uh, signed Mr. Davis's uh, ordination certificate. But Yogananda um, initiated and authorized um, quite a few people to actually teach Kriya Yoga. Um, Isidasa talked about Oliver Black, um, Norman Paulson, um, there's a few other people. Um, And so... while self-realization fellowship itself when you read at least as of not very long ago when you read the uh, The uh, website it says Yogananda is the last guru in the SRF line of gurus. That's what it says so it's clear that it doesn't mean that the lineage stopped with Yogananda and in fact that doesn't make sense because From what I understand now. I've never been to India um, but from what I understand, that's how the lineage is passed on, from teacher to student. And then that student becomes clear enough to share, and then it, it goes on and on. And even uh, Lahiri Mahasaya, which book was it? He, he describes, he says, the, the duty of the Kriya Yogi is to, practice, is to practice until you reach a state of clarity, self-realization, God-realization. And then the other duty is to initiate others into Kriya Yoga. So, Lahiriya Mahasaya said that as well. And of course, aside from the lineage of Self-Realization Fellowship, Sri Yukteswar had students. There's an ashram in Florida, which still teaches Kriya Yoga. Panchnan Bhattacharya had a lineage. Um, uh, There's a fellow in California who teaches through that lineage. So, the lineage continues in this sort of uh, wide-branched family tree. And it doesn't matter, in my experience, I don't think it matters who you learn from as long as they are clear in what they share, that they understand how the technique works, and then you yourself are devoted to do it. Um, some people have have, have asked me why I, why I personally teach it so freely. Like I have a video on YouTube where it describes the Kriya Yoga techniques. And um, I've gotten a lot of criticism for that. Um, but when Mr. Davis saw it, what he said was, he said, well, at least there's someone with some sense on there, you know, <laughs> talking about this. <laughs> so I took that as an okay thing. But he also mentioned that that technique that we know and that we're going to learn tomorrow, um, it's, not, it's not a secret. Like many yoga traditions have a variation of this technique. Even in Qigong and other types of um, uh, spirituality, you know, a circulating current through the spine, it's not that secret really. And what I have noticed, and I hope, and please listen to this, Really what the secret is is you doing it You know you get a lot of people who they think they're going to get this rocket ship Kriya Yoga technique and Magically in a matter of weeks or a few months all of a sudden They're going to be wide awake and clear and understand everything that you know Larry Mahasaya said and so the real secret is you keep doing it for the duration of your lifetime and it reveals itself versus people who just want a quick fix And then they're not going to do it, so they're not going to benefit from it. So personally, I don't... I think it's okay to teach, just like it's okay to teach, you know, doing push-ups or proper form when you're weightlifting. Everyone needs to know how to do that, and if you do it, you'll get stronger. So the same is true here, at least in my experience. Um, And the people I have met who, who have learned the technique and have practiced and have done it year after year, they find that they get clearer... I'm going to say that they get happier, but not like emotionally happy. It's like they get more understanding of life. They're more content. They see this constant cycle of the rise and fall of good things happen, bad things happen, good things happen, bad things happen. That's just the way life goes. But they learn to be the, like the, the spoke in the middle of the wheel, rather than being stuck on the edge of the wheel and constantly going through the mud or thinking, oh, it's great now, here comes the mud again. They're the wheel. They become the spoke in the wheel. And that's the most important thing, because that's what you're going to take with you from life to life. Your guru, or the personality of your guru, you're not going to take that with you from life to life. Your body, your mind, you're not going to take that with you. Your money, your love, your relationships, everything you have here, it's not going to go with you. But what's going to follow you is your clarity of awareness. Um, Mr. Davis was once asked, how do I know when I die that I'm going to be perfectly awake? And, you know, there's a a theory and an idea that if you bring your attention to your crown when you're dying, that you will ascend into the supernal realms and you'll never come back. Well, maybe that's true. Um, But his response was, the only way I know uh, that you're going to be perfectly awake, um, the only way I know that you're going to be perfectly awake uh, when you die is to be perfectly awake before you go. (laughs) And when I heard him say that, it was at the first Kriya Yoga Congress, I had to laugh because it's true. If you think about it, every day you go to sleep and you wake up, and every day you go to sleep and you wake up. And what really persists through these, these sleep and wake moments? Well, what persists is if you made a little bit of progress in your understanding or clarity the day before, that's what you're going to be pretty certain of is going to be there tomorrow as well. If you make a little more progress today that will follow you into the next day and the next day and so on and, and the theory is that the understanding that you have the clarity that you have now through your through your meditation through your life that when it comes time to leave the body while it might not necessarily be so pleasant depending on how you go when you pop out of it well that same state of clarity is going to be there then that's why when people report uh, you know when they have near death experiences and they go to hell well maybe how do you think their mind was before they went? They were probably already tortured in some way, like many people are, with anxiety, with depression, with trauma. Um, and then people who uh, go through experiences and they have a, a profound spiritual path, you know, Kriya Yoga, Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, whatever. But they've done this inner, this inner transformation. And so when they go through that process, through a little bit of struggle, and then pop out the other side, what is their experience? It's clear it's lighter, because they have cleared and lightened themselves the whole way through. You understand what I'm saying? This is why This is why. when I accept people to the, the, the Kriya Yoga Apprenticeship Program, the two-year program, or when people want to be a student, I try to make it very clear that that's good. And it's good if you have the dedication and the motivation. But what is also extremely helpful, if you are willing to do... The psychological work to resolve your traumas, to resolve your anxieties, to resolve your depressions. If you're able to do that first, when you come at the spiritual path, you're going to have a heck of a lot less struggle with it. Because many people come to the spiritual path because they are unhappy, because they don't like what they see in the world, because Life treated them wrongly, and they're looking for a way to resolve it or to, to escape from it. But if you bring that into your spiritual path, all you're doing is just trying to escape from the problem. Yogananda was known to have said, and I think I said it last night, um, that 90% of the spiritual path is really just psychological healing. And once, you, once you've done that work, the 10% is easy. And when, when we think about we're going on all kinds of different tangents today, aren't we? Um, <laughs> If we think about uh, the ages and how humans develop, um, one teacher had said that there was a period of time when we didn't need spiritual texts, when we didn't need spiritual teachers, when we didn't need laws and governments, because humans knew how to treat each other, because humans knew how to live a good, loving, healthy life. There was just a nat- there was a natural. Order to it, and they understood it. But then, as time happens, uh, cultures devolve, and human evolution goes down a little bit every twelve thousand years or so. Then comes back around. Well, then what happens? Well, then we have to have scriptures. Then we have to have laws. Then we have to have the Vedas. Then we have to have the Upanishads. Then we have to have we have to have this more concrete stuff to keep us in line because we don't we don't have the innate capacity to do it at this point in time. That's why we have these laws. That's why we have to say. Be a good person. Don't steal. Uh, Tell the truth. Don't be possessive. In in a a higher age, no one needs to tell you that. You just know it. In the same way that as you evolve spiritually, no one needs to tell you to be nice. No one needs to tell you to be compassionate. No one needs to tell you to tell the truth, because it seems in poor taste not to do that. So we we have to remember that... um, what we're, what we're doing is essentially moving back to the original state of, of humanity in this process. And our culture, the time period we are living in, all of that has an impact. Um, we are becoming more and more aware of the emphasis of trauma on our lives, of the emphasis of um, these mental-emotional hang-ups that we have. And what I have found, um, I was ta- talking to Isha Das last night about this, when I got involved in Kriya Yoga, um, I was graduating with a degree in psychology and philosophy. From that point, I was not in any way, shape, or form afraid of counseling. In fact, I thought I needed it because I couldn't see clearly enough to know what needed to be done. And so I, was all, I would always go to a counselor when I needed. And even now, 20 years later, um, when I need to talk to someone... I call up my EMDR therapist and I schedule some time and we work through some things. And what I have found is that by doing that, when I clear up a psychological quirk or when I clear up a trauma that, 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 that I had experienced that's still making me a little edgy about something or, or hanging on to something, when I clear that up, my spiritual practice becomes easy. Natural like it's just not even an issue when I read the yoga sutras or Ramana Maharshi's work or the Bhagavad Gita and I I read be fearless well when I've dealt with the Issue that was causing me fear. I'm naturally fearless right think about yourself when you are on vacation somewhere and you don't have a worry in the world and There's no stressor aren't you isn't it easier to just be present for most of us, at least. And I remember talking to uh, a student online, and he said, you know, I've, I've taken a lot of time off, and I don't have the stress of work, and I've been able to get away from my family a little bit. And he says, it's almost like super consciousness is natural. And I said, exactly, because you're not bogged down by all the stuff you're worried about. You're not bogged down by this, the, everything that's weighing on you. And that is what yoga is doing, is it's teaching you how to let go of all the crap and the BS, which really isn't that important in the first place, right? The trouble is, everyone lives that way, so you end up being a weirdo. <laughs> but, but it's a good kind of weirdo, right? It's a good kind of weirdo for you, at least. Um, so I, I'm telling you this so that you understand that <clears throat> the work of Kriya Yoga is not just, I know the technique, I've got the best guru in the world, I've got the Bhagavad Gita, I've got the Yoga Sutras, let's power through it. Your life and how you live your life, and how you adapt to your life, is also the practice. And the more you engage all three of those things, the the teachings that you get from your your teacher, the respect you have for your teacher, what you put into play there, uh, your your spiritual practice, and then how you navigate your life, these are the things, this this is the trinity which is going to make it all work. If you don't have one of those... You could probably still make it work, but it's going to be harder. You know, you've seen some three-legged dogs, right? They seem to have a hell of a good time. But if they've got four legs, they can run a lot better, right? That's what, that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to, set the, uh, we're trying to set it up so that it works very very well for you. In the Yoga Sutras, this is something for you to, to write down and think about later, and some of you have heard me talk about this a lot. In the Yoga Sutras, we have the Yamas and the Niyamas, Okay, this is the foundation for all practice. And in the Yoga Sutras, this is described as the great vow. Which, it's funny, because I've studied the Yoga Sutras for a long time, and it was only a few years ago when, for some reason, I happened to look at the Sanskrit and thought, huh, that says this is a great vow. <laughs> it, it, like, I never saw it before, it never dawned on me. It, it was it was just, I understood the, the, uh, the yamas and the yamas, but what it's telling you is that, Living in this way, you have to commit to living in this way for the rest of yoga to work, for you to be able to meditate, for you to be able to concentrate, for you to be able to have samadhi. That has to be there, and taking that vow is the most important thing. Now, the vow is for truthfulness, uh, contentment, non-stealing, purity, and this. you don't have to write this down. This is all in the Yoga Sutras. There's a whole list of them. So we have to remember that. Now, in the Bhagavad Gita, God, that's not a real candle. <laughs> um, in the Bhagavad Gita, chapter 16, what do we have here? Chapter 16, so that's page 227 of The Eternal Way. Yes, so 227 The Yoga of Discernment between the Higher and Lower Natures. There's a list at the very beginning. And again, you don't have to write this down. You can get this book and and read it. The list is fearlessness, purity of heart, abiding in yoga or samadhi, um, along with knowledge, charitable giving, self-restraint, holy offerings, study of sacred texts, austerity, uprightness, nonviolence, truth, absence of anger, renunciation, serenity, freedom from finding fault, compassion for all beings, Absence of cravings, gentleness, modesty, steadiness, vigor, forgiveness, fortitude, purity, freedom from malice and pride. These are the endowments of those born to a divine destiny, which we all, which we all have that destiny. But why, why are the yamas and niyamas, and why is these this first three uh, these first three phrases from chapter sixteen of the Bhagavad Gita so important? Because This is your guideline for determining how psychologically healthy you are. And it's also the the roadmap for figuring out how to get psychologically healthy. Um, Let's take, for example, uh, absence of anger. All right, sometimes I get angry, but I don't dwell on it for a long period of time. Usually it happens, I deal with it It passes and that's natural because we're human and we have emotions but some people get angry and they never stop being angry or maybe it's not necessarily part of their Constitution maybe it's like there are certain things that they get angry about and they never stop being angry about that one thing well that's not psychologically healthy so if you are able to pull back and recognize oh there's this thing I always get angry about and for some reason I can't help it well there's your first pointer of what you need to work on whether it's figuring out for yourself finding a counselor talking to your priest whatever it is that is that is a a a guidepost to show you this is one step you need to take towards psychological health what about truthfulness or truth now that's uh, here it's also in the yamas and niyamas so it's obviously very important why do people lie? Why do you lie? What are you afraid of? So if, if you're lying about something, or if you can't admit the truth about something, or you're inauthentic about something, there is a pointer there. Now, it's not to be judgmental. We're not saying you're a bad person. It's just a quirk that you've got. But that is pointing you in the direction of what you need to work on to get psychologically healthy. What do you lie about? What aren't you in a state of truth about? Figure out what's getting in your way and deal with it. And then you'll be free of it, and then you can be truthful. My late wife, Melissa, she was bisexual, and she had um, a family who was very uh, religious, and she was deathly afraid of telling them uh, that, that she was bisexual. Not that it mattered. I mean, we were married, but it was just part of her that she felt she needed to kind of express (laughs) <laughs> and she picked a great time to tell her family because she was dying, and what are they going to say then, right? <laughs> but but that was something that for for her whole life that troubled her. And when she finally told them, again, of course, she had <laughs> death on her side to make them accepting of it, but when she finally told them, she felt profoundly free. I mean, she just felt like a weight was lifted off of her. And then she became very truthful about many things, which... <laughs> She, wasn't quite, uh, can, can, she didn't have quite candor about. But anyway, <clears throat> uh, that was freeing for her. That was liberating for her. Um, but there are little things in our lives. Like, for example, uh, when you go and you spend time with family members and, and they do things and they expect you to act a certain way, and it's just not who you are. It's like not, not what's true for you. It doesn't mean you go in there with your guns blazing to try to like prove a point. You just have to find a way to say to them, I love you. But I'm sorry, I don't like my mom. I don't want to go to I don't want to go to Sunday mass with you. I'm not. I don't feel Catholic anymore. You know, having to say something like that to them. It's not that you're trying to be cruel. You're just sharing your truth. So anyway, um, since we're running out of time here, I just want to point out that this list of things. This is your guide to uh, your psychological well-being. Um, you know why don't you? Why aren't you disciplined? Why why don't you practice self-restraint? Why can't you? Uh, why can't you get up every morning and meditate at the same time? Well, you can think you're a free, creative spirit, and you can't you know commit to those types of things. But a healthy-minded person can do that. There's no problem there. They just get up and they do things. So whatever is getting in your way to have discipline to commit to something, you either need to power through it, or you need to figure out what is the cause of it. Now, the final thing I will say about this is. I do not encourage um, making therapy or, or psychological work a, a hobby. You know, a lot of people, it's like that's all they're doing. You know, every time you talk to them, they're processing something, or they're learning something new, or there's this new technique, and so on. Sometimes you just got to say, I'm just not doing that anymore. Not not I'm not going to therapy or counseling when I need it, but if you're angry about something, you may have worked through everything. You may have actually touched upon every trauma, but the habit's still there. And so it's not caused by you know some deep demon inside of you because the demon's gone. You've exercised it. Now it's just you've got to say, you know what, I'm going to grow up and I'm just not going to be angry about that anymore. So while I really encourage psychological work, I do not in any way, shape, or form encourage um, making a hobby out of it. You're, 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 you get a hobby, play guitar or garden or something. Um, but don't make, don't make this need for constant transformation a hobby because... Um, if you're familiar with the term uh, rajas, anyone not familiar with that term rajas? Well, rajas means uh, it's a transformational energy. And so we have an energy called sattva, which is about truth and light and inspiration. We have an energy called rajas, which is more about transformation, making, making something better. We have a, a, an energy called Tamas, which is about inertia and heaviness. And this is, all of creation is made of this. So we need heaviness to stay stable. We need sattva to be inspired to do things. We need rajas to transform things, to make ourselves better. But we don't want to just become rajasic to where it's just non stop self improvement. Because spirituality is not about self improvement, <laughs> it's about realizing the self. There's nothing to improve there. So, that said, um, keep this in mind. And this is some scattered discussion. On uh, the origins of our modern Kriya Yoga tradition um, for your own uh, education the book Autobiography of a Yogi you know covers pretty much the history of it from Yogananda uh, back to Mahavatar Babaji if you like to listen to podcasts um, podcast I do called the Kriya Yoga podcast uh, if you go way back to the beginning I start with the gurus and I talk about Mahavatar um, Babaji and Lahiriya Masai, and so on. Um, Mr. Davis's book, um, Paramahansa Yogananda as I Knew Him. Paramahansa Yogananda as I Knew Him. That's a wonderful discussion on his experiences with Yogananda. Uh, and, you know, this just moves through time from one person to another. And these principles that we're going to be learning this weekend that many of you already know, they're not uh, they are not hard but it does, it does take some effort to embody them. And that's why we're here. And the Kriya practice itself gives us the capacity to be clear enough inside, to be settled enough inside, to be calm enough inside, so that when we are presented with a, a challenge to embody peacefulness rather than anger, when we're presented with a challenge to embody truthfulness rather than fibbing a little bit, that clarity gives us the energy and the openness to see maybe it's okay to make that choice this time. And of course you have to make the choice. But every time you do it, it becomes easier and it becomes easier. And then patience, compassion, these types of things become your natural state. And you don't need a book or a teacher or a religion to tell you to do that anymore. And that's that's my goal for you, (laughs) is to recognize that and then it just becomes natural. I believe it's the Gita where it says uh, scriptures and these types of things to a sage or a saint is like um, uh, water um, in, a, in a flooded plain. You, know, you, you get to a point where it's just what you are. You live and you breathe it. This episode of the Kriya Yoga podcast was made possible by donations from Kriya Yoga apprenticeship students and supporters of our Patreon community at www.patreon.com forward slash Kriya Yoga.